Hi there everyone, I trust that you're all doing well and that you're very expectant as I am with regards to receiving this message today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the power of your word. God, we thank you for the word of your power. We open our hearts, Lord, that you may impart revelation to us, that you may empower us, you may ignite us, that you may activate us to live a kingdom life. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Well, I trust that you're enjoying the messages that we are sharing with you this year. There was a powerful message my wife preached last week on hope. And I really believe that it spoke to many of you who were listening that hope is something we need to treasure. Hope is something we really need to value. This week, as I've been praying and seeking God's face with regards to what to share, he just gave me this word, scenarios, scenarios. And I was thinking of, you know, we typically think of scenario, situation someone is in. But he gave me scenarios, spelled S-I-N, okay? And what are scenarios? It's a word that came to me describing scenarios where we come into contact with sin, where we come into contact with sin. I believe that God is calling us to develop a clear theology of restoration. And you know, one of the challenges in the body of Christ today is that many of us don't know what to do with sin when we come into contact with it. The sin of another person, you see? Uh, sometimes even uh, our struggle is with our own sin. But the purpose of this message is to focus on coming into scenarios where we are exposed to other people's sin. In this message, I'll explore specific scenarios or scenarios where we interface with the sin of another. We'll also examine Jesus as he role modeled to us how to do this particular thing. How did he deal with it? Did he deal with sin differently case by case? Or is there a pattern we see? In the life of Christ? What instructions are we given in scripture with regards to our response to the sin of another person? And what are the guidelines for the restoration process? I believe that it will make or break us this year, the way in which we deal with scenarios. I believe it's so crucial for us as we are encouraging the church to grow in evangelism and pastoral care to actually have a very clear philosophy of ministry with regards to how we're going to deal with the sin of others. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What does that word full mean? It means complete right? So Jesus came complete with grace and complete with truth. Everything Jesus said and did was underpinned by grace and truth. You see, the two are not mutually exclusive. And sometimes we treat them like that, don't we? Like they're mutually exclusive, right? That if you're a truthful person, then you can't be gracious. That if you're full of grace, you can't have truth. And as we examine the following scenarios, I really would like us to keep this in mind. Let's keep it in mind. John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. I'm going to read from the NLT. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, 
and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, this passage highlights the contrast between the Pharisaic approach to scenarios and Jesus's approach. We're seeing a contrast here of approaches, and we've got something to learn here. The Pharisaic goal is often to shame the one who has sinned. Have you noticed that? They put her in front of the crowd. In verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. That's that pharisaical spirit, isn't it? Demanding, demanding. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned, throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Isn't that amazing? You see, we are called to first reflect on our own depravity before we consider passing judgment on another. This is crucial. And this is a principle that Jesus is bringing up with regards to how we deal with another person's sin. In verse 9, when the accusers heard this, That's that spirit of accusation. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I wonder why it was the oldest. Maybe he was in a place of maturity where he knew that, oh, I have messed up. And maybe the young people were still a bit more defensive. I don't know. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Isn't it so powerful? You see, when mercy and grace are extended, the goal is always restoration to wholeness. The goal is always restoration to wholeness. Jesus didn't just say, you are forgiven. I don't condemn you. You know, I release grace to you. In addition to that, he said, go and sin no more. His goal was restoration. You see, often sin is a choice for which one must take personal responsibility. What do I mean by that? Jesus just instructed her, go and sin no more. And Jesus appears to have been very confident about her ability to choose the right way. He seems to know that there was power in the mercy that had been shown to her. Right? And that mercy will carry her through as she received that grace, as she received that mercy. It would carry her through to righteous living. Her life was literally saved by him. She could have been stoned to death. Imagine how grateful she would have felt toward Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he who has been forgiven much loves much. He didn't immediately say to her that he needed to dig deep to find out the root cause of her infidelity. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing so, but I just love his confidence. He just commanded her to stop doing it. He said, I don't condemn you. There's no condemnation. Stop doing it. Often when we release condemnation, people carry on doing it. You see, sometimes that's all that's needed. Demonstration of God's extravagant love 
and his extravagant acceptance, followed by the instruction to stop sinning. And it's important to note, Jesus' demonstration of mercy did not stop him from acknowledging her sin. Jesus' demonstration of mercy did not stop him from acknowledging her sin. You see, people can only truly experience forgiveness when they have first admitted there is something for which they need to be forgiven. Let's be real. Let's be real. Today, many people are saying, just receive God's grace, receive God's grace, but they shy away from acknowledging that there was sin first that needed God's grace. This is why one of the starting points when you're ministering salvation to someone is getting the person to acknowledge Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A lot of people today downplay and minimize the power of salvation because they have not acknowledged that they're first sinners. In essence, this is what Jesus is actually doing in this scenario. The principle demonstrated in this passage, right, that I've just read to you, is actually taught clearly by Jesus in the following verses. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. It says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I love his analogies. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, the emphasis here is the order in which we do things. Jesus is not saying we must avoid removing the speck from our brother's eye. He's not, he's not saying thou shalt not remove the speck in your brother's eye. He's actually emphasizing that we must first reflect on ourselves before doing so. And the pharisaical mindset doesn't do that. The pharisaical mindset is conceited. What is conceit when we have a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought? You see, usually one says things more tenderly after one has recognized one's own failures. The tone that you end up having is now less condemning, isn't it? You know, sometimes what I do is when I start having critical thoughts towards someone, one of the first things I like to do, and I've asked God to help me in this whole process, is to look at myself and see, have I messed up in that same area? Have I done something similar? Even if it's a thought version of it, you know, just a, or a desire version of it. And very often I have. And so when I confront that situation, the, the tone is different. You see, someone who attempts to correct and instruct others without first dealing with himself on the matter is described by Jesus as a hypocrite. They're described by Jesus as a hypocrite. We also learn from this passage that as long as we've got that plank in our own eye, our vision will be impaired. That's why Jesus says, take the plank out of your eye so you can see clearly. As long as that plank is in my eye, my vision is impaired. My question to you is, could that be the reason why our attempts to restore others often fail because we haven't actually paid attention to the planks in our own eyes? Could it be that some of our narrative has been so muddied because uh, it's mixed in our own guilty conscience because of the unresolved wickedness that plagues our own souls? I don't know, perhaps. In Galatians 6 verse 1, I'm reading from the NLT. Dear brothers and sisters, 
if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. That's restoration. Gently and humbly. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Bible tells us that pride usually comes before fall. And you know, what's interesting to me is none of these scriptures talk about ignoring sin. You know, in addition, the qualification for restoring someone else isn't always closeness in relationship, but it's godliness, it's gentleness, and it's humility. Right? It doesn't say you have to be best friends first. And there's an excuse a lot of people give. They're like, oh, but that person is closer to them. Well, sometimes the person who's closer isn't necessarily the best person to speak into their lives and, and bring about restoration. Sometimes someone from the outside might have a more objective perspective. Okay? You see, the moment you position yourself to instruct with regards to a particular area of sin, you may potentially open yourself up to temptation in that very same area. Because you're really declaring war on the enemy. You're declaring war against the enemy in that particular area. Okay? And sometimes you're actually dealing with demonic strongholds in that particular person. So it's, and it's, it's so important that we're mature in dealing with these things. Because sometimes there's a spiritual dynamic we're dealing with. And that's why we need to be looking at ourselves and saying, where am I at here? Have I also repented in this area? Or am I conceited? Am I deceived? In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So it's not saying do not correct others, do not restore others, but it's saying tread very carefully when you do so, watching yourself, and make sure you're humble and make sure you're gentle as you do it. There are times I hesitate to release certain people to teach prematurely, because I'm aware of the spiritual backlash that they can experience, you see. And often people aren't at the maturity where they can deal with that spiritual backlash. Often after teaching on a specific subject, I find myself being tested in that very same area afterwards, right? Um, I want to outline a few scenarios for us to examine different types of situations. The first is when people sin in our space. That's a unique one, isn't it? It's one thing for people to sin out there. It's another thing where you've got your space, like I'm in charge of this space. This is my space. This is how I want to live, right? And then someone sins in that environment. How are we to deal with that? A good example of this is Jesus in the temple. In John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, let's read. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Right? To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. What are you zealous over? This is, this is so crucial, isn't it? This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He was so passionate about the temple. The desecration and the misuse of the temple definitely triggered Jesus. Now, how does this compare with what we allow into our house? 
or what we allow into our church or what we allow uh, into our business? Should we have the same passion Jesus had? What about our bodies if they're ever misused? Should we have this, that same passion that Jesus had? Now, if our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, how do you think Jesus deals with us when they're used for illicit purposes? Now, just think about it a bit. I'm not saying that Jesus will take a whip and whip you into shape. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that he is just as passionate, isn't he? If not more. If not more, because our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just think about that. I believe that it's the same concerning us because we belong to him, right? He can't be so passionate about the temple, but indifferent toward us. Just think about that. Just think about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through to 20, the Bible says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I want you to reflect for a moment and to think of those areas of your life that are your space. Are you guarding that space? Are you guarding that space? Are you able to say, this is what I accept in this environment and this I will not accept? How do you deal with sin in your space? You know, when someone sins, it speaks of falling short of the glory of God. It speaks of missing the mark. It's a bit like an arrow. When an arrow is shot, okay, and doesn't quite reach the mark. There's all sorts of sin that takes place around us. And how we engage with it is crucial. <clears throat> the second scenario I want to talk about is when people sin in our church family. Jesus gives us clear guidelines for dealing with sin in the church, doesn't he? As we go through this passage, just reflect on yourself and your church culture to see where you are, where you are not functioning like this. In Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17, it says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. I want to say something at this point. There are a lot of Christians today who say, don't preach about sin. And they've almost got this thing of, it's negative. You're preaching a negative message. But this is the good news. The end point of all this is good news. But we need to be able to unpack the nature of temptation, the nature and the dynamics of sin. It's a bit like someone going to medical school and saying, no, no, we are positive people. We just talk about a healthy lifestyle. We're not going to study disease no, that's being negative. We're just going to talk about a healthy lifestyle. And some people have become like that. Just focus on Jesus. Don't talk about sin. You know, sin doesn't go away just because you don't talk about it. It's important for us to understand it. So if your brother or sister sins, and you see the Bible talks quite a bit about sin, go and point out their fault. That's quite direct, isn't it? Jesus says, go and point out their fault. But between the two of you, in other words, don't gossip about it. Don't spread rumors about it. Your heart is to restore. If they listen to you, you've won them over. That's the goal. I want to win my brother over. I want to win my sister over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is so crucial. You know, there's some people where they hear something about someone else and as soon as they hear it, they believe it. It hasn't been established by two or three witnesses, but oh, did you hear? Ooh, right? 
If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that's quite powerful. The first instruction is that we are to confront them about it privately. And here Jesus is endorsing the idea of pointing out a fault. The goal is winning them over. It's restoration. Now, what are the alternatives to this? There's gossip. There's denial. We just pretend it will go away. There's um, assumptions. There's abandonment. We just like ignore them. Oh, I'm ignoring that person. Please note that Jesus was not limiting this instruction to church leaders. You see, in a church, there's mutual accountability. It's so important to understand that. Just like in a soccer team, right? When a guy isn't passing to you, what do people say? You tried to score. You were being a glory boy. You didn't pass. You didn't pass. All right? They don't wait until the halftime pep talk where the coach is giving the feedback. They give the feedback there. And it's so important in a church family to have mutual accountability. Instead of just sitting back and saying, we'll see what the pastors say about that. Okay? We're accountable to each other. Think of how many more people would still be in church today if their brothers and sisters in the Lord had confronted them. Because they know what's going on. Very often pastors can't see what's happening. They don't know what's happening on the ground. Okay? Imagine we had a church where people challenged each other. Where you're challenged by your fellow brothers and sisters for being continuously late for church, for example, or for unsavory behavior toward the opposite sex. Imagine that. One of the principles we also get here is that we don't need to give up prematurely because if we confront that person and they don't listen, we can take a couple more people to help to address the matter. And sometimes we give up very quickly. Ah, that person will never listen to me. Or maybe they will listen when there are two or three more people. And then next we learn that if someone rejects the counsel of a number of people, it is actually not unbiblical to make it known to the church, okay? After which further refusal to listen to the church results in excommunication. Now, this passage of scripture shows us how highly Jesus regards the church. It doesn't need to get to this stage, right? If the person is already teachable and has a broken heart, brokenness in the first place, but sadly, often it ends up getting to that stage. The third scenario I want to talk about is when people sin against you. In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times but 77 times. Now we know in scripture that seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. So what Jesus is saying is forgive perfectly, forgive completely. And you see, forgiveness should be our default. And it's not limited to the church. It's not limited to our, our households. All right. It's also to be practiced in the workplace, in business, in the corporate world. And you see, there's what I call workplace wounds. And I want to emphasize this because sometimes people build up so much bitterness, so much resentment in the workplace, okay? But they become like that battered wife, the battered wife who's risking her life, all right? Who's been so, so abused, but remains in the situation for economic reasons. And sometimes people in the corporate world are a bit like that. Hey, well, at least I'm hoping for that bonus at the end of the month. 
I'm just waiting for that um, pay rise. I'm just waiting for that promotion I've been promised, right? But you're carrying so many wounds. You're carrying so many wounds, right? So it's actually been found, I was reading an article that actually uh, did some, they did some research where they saw that there's a positive correlation between forgiveness in the workplace and productivity. People who are not carrying resentment at work tend to be more productive. I want to encourage you. There's lots of sin against us in the workplace. It's important to release. It's important to forgive. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of times people end up doing fraudulent things at work because of unforgiveness. You see, they become bitter and the bitterness defiles them and they end up doing things that they never thought of doing. You say to them when you ask them more than two questions deep, why did you steal the money from your company? Oh, Paul, you know what? I'm not paid enough. And I thought to myself, if they can't listen to me when I want to pay rise, I will do it myself. They don't deserve anything more than what they're getting right now. I want more. You hear people saying things like that, right? Even procrastination at work, at a subconscious level, you find someone going on a personal go slow, dragging their feet. You say, why? Oh, well, two years ago, I asked my boss to do this for me. I asked them to do that for me, and they took their time. So why should I rush when they ask me to do things for them, you know? And I want to just say this, forgiving from the heart does not mean that justice is not served when necessary. Just because someone ends up in prison because of an illegal thing they did against you doesn't mean you haven't forgiven the person, all right? Sometimes justice is served as a form of discipline, as a form of protecting uh, society, right? Um, but you can still forgive from your heart. It's so important. So obviously there's forgiveness in terms of childhood wounds. And let me say something I've been saying quite a lot lately, that people typically don't do things to you. They do things for themselves. And it's that mature person who's able to notice that, that mature person who's able to say, the reason why this person is so rude, it's because of how they grew up, right? It's not something personal against me. I feel for them. Let me pray for them. Let me intercede for them. You're able to do that. It doesn't excuse or justify the behavior, but it keeps you free from resentment. The fourth scenario I want to talk about is when people sin against your loved ones. This happens quite a lot, doesn't it? There's an interesting account in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see the account of Tamar being raped by Amnon. Now, Amnon was Absalom's brother from another mother, right? And they were sons of David. And Tamar was Absalom's sister. Now, <clears throat> Amnon was in love with her. He was obsessed with her, the Bible says. And he wanted to find a way of getting close to her. And a friend of his, who was very conniving, said, you know what? Why don't you do this? And the trick they came up with is he pretended to be sick and then he asked someone, please, can you bring Tamar to me so that she can feed me while I'm sick? And then he ends up not eating the food. And then he says, can you come to my chambers? And then he forces himself onto her. And there was such wickedness in this deed because before he even did so, she was a godly woman. And she said, you know what? In terms of the fornication that she thought was going to happen, she said, listen, this is not allowed in Israel. And then she said, why don't you speak to your father? And maybe... Um, you know, I, I, can be, I can become your wife. So she offered him that, but he still raped her. And what happened was that Absalom, her brother, kept this in his heart. 
for, for about two years. And then he orchestrated his murder. He murdered Amnon. And it's interesting because a rumor then developed that he had actually killed all of David's sons. And then someone corrected that. Have a look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 32. It says, no, don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom had been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister, Tamar. What have you been plotting in your heart? In my book on anger, I talk about one of the types of anger, which is the calculated one, where you're, re you're taking revenge. You're quiet about it, and then you end up doing it sometimes after a couple of years. What have, what have you become bitter about? Especially to do with people who've sinned against your loved ones. Do you have loved ones who've been sinned against? How do you feel towards the perpetrators? Do you feel uh, bitter? Do you feel resentful? Is there vengeance in your heart? How do you feel towards those people who've maybe swindled your parents or abused your wife or bullied your child? You see, in cases like this, have you noticed that we tend to allow bitterness to kick in and sometimes we are justified, we feel justified in our thoughts of violence because it isn't against us personally. We say it was something that we're going to do against a loved one, right? And I've sometimes justified thoughts of violence as I imagine certain things when it comes to potential abuse of a loved one or disrespect toward a loved one. Right? Sometimes we feel that forgiveness is only warranted when it is sin against ourselves. Right? And it's at these times that we should remember certain scriptures. For example, here's a powerful one. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Powerful scripture. Right? Bitterness defiles you. The moment you allow bitterness in your heart, it ends up defiling you and you end up doing things you never thought you would ever do. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now this is Paul. This is the so-called apostle of grace. And he's basically saying there's certain situations where you mustn't take revenge, but you must actually leave room for God's wrath. There are those situations. All right. The fifth scenario I want to talk to you about is when those under your authority sin. When people who are under your authority sin. You see, each of us have default behaviors, don't we? Some of us are more prone to mercy than justice, whilst others prefer justice. Some of us in our parenting style will focus on counseling our children or praying for our children, whilst others will focus on training and disciplining, right? It's so important to look at scripture systematically when it comes to this. You see, with parenting, I've come to realize that we must teach our children that their actions have consequences, even if they've rationalized their behavior. It's no excuse for sin. And you see some people just say, Pastor, play, pray for my child. My child needs deliverance. And they focus only on that. But you cannot separate deliverance from discipleship. So we need all of the above. We need to discipline our children. But we also need to counsel them to find out where's the root of that anger? Where is it actually coming from? Where's the root of your pain that is causing you to act like this? So I will counsel you, right? I will instruct you. 
I will also discipline you, right? That's my message to my children. So important. You know, discipline comes from the same root word as to train. And sometimes we need to exercise maybe space boundaries when we're trying to train our children. If there's an unruly child who's disturbing the environment, maybe you're having family game time. Maybe part of that discipline is to actually say, listen, whatever frustration you're experiencing, it's no excuse for sin. So please go and just um, say, stay over there. You're not welcome into our space until you change your attitude. Very important. Okay. I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to discipline those who are under your authority? Or do you only just focus on, let me pray for them? Are you that person who only disciplines and never prays? Just think about it. What about in the workplace? What about in the workplace? Recently, I was conducting a corporate workshop and then four members of that, of that particular team arrived about two hours late and they ended up distracting us. Imagine we started the session at about nine o'clock. They arrive at about 11. I see this BMW coming and I'm thinking it's just other people who are coming as guests to the resort and it's booming, you know, with, with loud music, right? And it was very distracting. Their leader told them that they were not welcome anymore to join us. And I believe he was right to do so. He asked me afterwards, Paul, do you think that was the right approach? I said, yes. You know that sometimes when you reward non-performers, it's actually the biggest way of demotivating your performers. I know leaders who've had great breakthroughs in their business immediately after releasing so-called bad apples, okay, who weren't aligned with um, their values, who weren't performing and they were poisoning the team. Sometimes you have to exercise space boundaries when you're dealing with those who sin, who are under your authority. As a father, I've had to take accountability for what I allow in my household, what I allow in terms of words that are spoken, what I allow in terms of attitudes, what I allow in terms of behavior. I've had to say to my wife, my love, I'm really sorry that I allowed this child to say this to you or allowed that child to do this. I've had to apologize because as the father, I am accountable for what I allow in our space. In Proverbs 23 verses 13 to 14, it says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Are we doing what we need to do to save our children's souls from death? Please note it speaks of a rod, not fists, not hands, all right? As one of the forms of discipline. Now in Deuteronomy 11 verse 19 it says, Teach them, talking about the laws, the word of God, teach them to your children talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. We are called to instruct our children. We can't discipline our children for things we have not taught them. We need to communicate the standard. So instruction, counsel, and discipline go hand in hand. In Colossians 3:21, it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. You see, we mustn't discipline from a place of anger, but we must discipline our children from hearts full of firm, unconditional love. And then finally, I want to talk to you today about when those in the world sin. 
This is the next scenario when those in the world sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 13, in the Berean Study Bible, it reads, But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a verbal abuser, a drunkard or a swindler. Please note, it's talking about those who are claiming to be brothers, but are living like this. With such a man, do not even eat. But then he says something interesting. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So this applies to people who say they're in the church, but they're living like this. God will judge those outside. Then he goes on to say, expel the wicked man from among you. I find it very interesting. This is Paul, the so-called apostle of grace. And look what he's saying. If someone got up and said this, we'll be thinking to ourselves, to ourselves, they're so legalistic. They're so harsh. There's no grace in them. But he says this. And I want you to see that it's not talking about people in the world. You see, remember that sinners sin, right? Sinners sin. Those who don't know Jesus, their spirits are, are depraved. Their spirits are not regenerated. Sometimes we focus so much on behavior modification with the world instead of preaching the gospel to people. You see, the gospel is ultimately the only solution to the sin problem that mankind faces. It's a bit like taking your dog to the parlor and then disciplining it for rolling in the mud afterwards. That's what dogs do. That's what sinners do. They sin. All right. Now, I'm not saying that uh, people are dogs, but an unsaved person's spirit has not yet been regenerated. So our job is to preach the gospel to them. And sometimes in certain cases, we're called to actually appeal to their conscience because God has given people a conscience. Okay, we to appeal to their conscience and their general morality just to protect the moral innocence of people who they may be harming. Now, engaging with the world might include an ungodly boss. How do you deal with them? It might include extended family members that are respected and feared. Now, there are various ways of dealing with the world, and here are some of them. The first thing to do is focus on being an example of kingdom living. Focus on being an example of kingdom living. In Philippians 2, 14 to 15, it says, Do everything without complaining or grumbling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Where? Pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So question, as you relate with the world's sin, are you shining or are you just the same? Other thing to do when we're relating to the world in terms of sin is communicate to elders with gentleness and respect. You know, it's so sad when you see Christians dealing with the world, but with such a spirit of pride and arrogance. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. Now, I believe that this scripture can be applied not only to a church setting, but also an extended family scenario. It's important to understand that. Next thing you can do is create space boundaries and emotional boundaries where necessary. Can you see where I'm going with this? When you appeal to older people, you're basically saying to that uh, great uncle, 
you're basically saying, hey, please, you know, you're drinking. I think it might be setting a bad example and people might view you differently. Why don't you just do it when you're by yourself? Or why don't you, you're trying to do that, right? But with gentleness, you're appealing to them, right? Other thing to do is create space boundaries and emotional boundaries where necessary. For example, there was a lady who shared with me, um, I was counseling her and her husband, and um, she shared with me how she wasn't comfortable going back to her parents' home. She says, my parents are into a lot of traditional African religion stuff, okay? And there's a history of sangomas, witch doctors, in my family. So I'm only comfortable going there when I'm stronger spiritually, because there's a lot of pressure they're placing on me because they say that there's a calling on my life to also become that, all right? So that's a space boundary and an emotional boundary, and that's very valid. I was reading a biography of a well-known pastor uh, recently who shares an experience he had that when he was growing up, his parents were also witch doctors, right? And uh, his parents would get excited when they would see him levitate or funny supernatural things happen to him. When he would have those kinds of experiences, he would say, mom, dad, this is what happened to me. And they would get excited about it, right? And um, because they wanted him to also continue with that family tradition. And supernaturally, at a certain point, God actually led him away as a young boy, like in his teens, led him away from that particular home. All right. So there are times when that happens, when you've got sin that's happening around you, especially with authority figures in a family situation where the best thing to do is to create an emotional boundary or a space boundary. In Matthew 18 verse 9, it says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus spoke about hell and Jesus also spoke about getting rid of things that cause you to sin. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, it says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Isn't that true? When the world around us is sinning, our proximity to them must result in us influencing them. It's so important. If you are not influencing them, but rather being influenced, then perhaps you need to downgrade some of your friends to the status of acquaintance. So true to say, I'm downgrading you. You might not even tell them directly, but you downgrade them from friend to acquaintance. All right. You see, it's great to be in those in-between places, isn't it? Those places where everyone has to adapt to be there. It could be uh, school is often an in-between place. It could be uh, a place of uh, training or the gym, right? Those are those in-between places where we've got an opportunity to influence, right? There's a powerful book by Mark Buchanan uh, called Is Your Church Too Safe? And he talks about these in-between places. But you know what? We must be influencers in those environments. Can you say honestly and truthfully, the influence and impact that I have on the world around me is bigger than it has on me? If you are being influenced, maybe you need to pull out of that environment. But if you're an influencer, I mean, Jesus was called friend of sinners and he influenced in those places. May God help us to go into the world full of grace and truth like Jesus. May he give us wisdom as we navigate various scenarios. When people sin in your space, may you be able to deal with it in a biblical way, full of grace and truth. When people sin in the church family, may you be able to have that grace to follow through on Jesus's pattern. When people sin against you, may you forgive and release them and never become bitter. When people sin against your loved ones, 
May you know how to protect them whilst at the same time releasing those perpetrators. When those under your authority sin, may you exercise discipline. May you counsel them. May you instruct them. And when those in the world sin, may you be wise in setting a good example for them and appealing to them and also, of course, preaching the gospel to them. In all these cases, just remember to always apply the principle of full of grace, full of truth. Father, we come before you and we ask for your strength to apply that which we have learned. Come and help us, Lord, in all these different scenarios. Give us grace, Lord. We know that this can make or break us this year and give us wisdom to know what to do next. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to encourage you at the end of this month, January, we, that last week of January, we will be having a week of prayer and fasting. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that. I believe it's going to be very, very powerful. And uh, join us for our online prayer meetings during that particular time. God bless you.